Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also lead Ruse's One the Terrace project. Many thanks to Willis House Watson for making this podcast possible. Now, as we've discussed many times on On the Cusp, business is the new frontline of national security. And in recent days, there's been plenty of news in that area. On the 17th of August, the US Department of Commerce announced that non-US companies were prohibited from selling items produced with US technology to Huawei. That means that Huawei can't buy chips for its products anymore because it has been using chips that were fully or partly made in the US. And there just aren't many other suppliers of chips around the world. And the ones that are don't have space in their order books. Now, Huawei has built a two-year reserve of the chips that it needs for its 5G equipment and cloud computing, but it doesn't have a similar stockpile for its smartphones. So if you're a Huawei smartphone user, this is bad news for you, and it's terrible news for Huawei, which, if this does come to pass, simply won't be able to make smartphones. And last week, the EU sounded the alarm over looming shortages of rare earth metals. Now, rare earth metals are found in, for example, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and they are not exceptionally rare, but they are very labor-intensive to process. And in the past few years, China has captured a rare earth processing market. Chinese companies today have a virtual monopoly on rare earth processing, and that's highly relevant to all of us because rare earth metals are vital to the gadgets that we use every day. Without rare earth metals, no mobile phones or electric cars. So we are dependent on China and on a few other countries. And when the sun is shining, that's no big deal. But what if China were to stop delivering rare earth metals as revenge against America shutting Huawei out of the US microchip market? With me to discuss the risk of such commercial choke points and how companies can exploit them as they compete for power are Henry Farrell, who is an SNF Agora Institute professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, and Abraham Newman, who is a professor at the BMW Center for German and European Studies at Georgetown University. So starting with you, Abe, from a Western perspective, the rare earth metal situation is obviously extraordinarily fragile. Now, should we worry about it, or should we just assume that China would never go for the nuclear option of, of cutting us out of, of rare earth metal supplies? Well, I think the rare earth metals case is part of a growing trend where countries are starting to use supply chains for leverage for geostrategic goals. I think the rare earth metals case is probably less worrisome because, as you mentioned, there are alternatives. You know, ultimately, rare earth metals is a question about how messy do you want to be in terms of environmental production? The U.S. has rare earth metals. Lots of countries have rare earth metals, but it's kind of a gross sector to be in. So it's better to outsource that to some country that doesn't mind having the environmental spillovers. So I think ultimately rare earth metals is less of a concern than where you mentioned uh, Huawei and the chips, where Huawei really has no alternative. This isn't about environmental standards or labor practices. This is just there is no or very few alternatives. And so you see this kind of, can you substitute for a good? That will lead to how strong is the choke point that countries are leveraging and whether they really have power. And Henry, if I can then take the next step in that equation with you, which is, is it healthy for countries to develop this sort of specialization where 
the US, for example, dominates the microchip market and is able to, to shut Huawei out of, of uh, microchip supplies? And, or is it, is it healthy? Is it just a part of globalization? Is it something we should accept or is it extremely worrisome? Okay, so we have assumed for a long, long time that it is possible for businesses to rely upon the logic of specialization and Adam Smith's logic of how it is that you can put production out. And this is one of the basic assumptions that makes global marketplaces work, that we have assumed that if Huawei wants to buy semiconductors from a United States company, that this is going to work and this is going to be something that is going to benefit both Huawei and the company in question. So if we are moving to a world where these forms of specialization can be turned into weapons that can be used against uh, companies or indeed entire countries, then that obviously presents a very, very different logic than the one that we have been used to. And so this is one of the reasons, of course, why China, after it became clear that Huawei and VTE were threatened by uh, U.S. supplies, why it really began to accelerate its efforts to create its own independent ability to create sophisticated semiconductors. And the interesting question then is whether it is a good idea for Europe and for the United States to do similar things in similar areas where they might be threatened. Now, as I've said, this is very, very hard to do because semiconductors rely upon, if you want to have a sophisticated semiconductors industry, you have to invest vast amounts of money over a substantial period of time to build up the specializations, to build up the expert knowledge. All of these are very, very hard to come by. But we are seeing this move towards a logic in which countries are going to be worried that these choke points are going to be used against them and are going to become more and more willing to rely upon internal rather than external uh, resources where they fear that those external resources could be used against them. And this is going to rely involve a lot of change in the way that the world economy works. And Aim, coming back to you, it's interesting how the choke points are not always obvious because we, we just... Uh, we as, as ordinary consumers just go about our daily lives and don't realize uh, how uh, fragile uh, the situation is and the, the production of the goods is that we rely on every single day. And so if you look at, for example, PPE, no, none of us, I think, as, as ordinary consumers were concerned about the production of PPE until it became a very uh, vital issue at the early stages of, of the lockdown and the world was competing for PPE and it was discovered that, lo and behold, China produces most of the world's PPE, and, and they were not about to, uh, to provide us with it when they needed it themselves. So could you tell us a little bit about which other choke points there are, bearing in mind that it's not just China that has these vital supplies or controls these vital supplies, but we control, we, the West, control vital supplies that others depend on and, and might worry that they will be cut out of if, if we dislike their behavior, as was the case with Huawei and the microchips. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that Henry have, and I have been pushing in our research is that uh, these very arcane and technical infrastructures of globalization are really the source of power for states these days. And in many cases, even the countries and the firms do not fully understand the intricacies of these global networks. And so we, we keep being surprised because these were things that were just seen as taken for granted interactions. They were often market-based. Nobody planned the supply chain for PPEs. This wasn't you know, a government plot to have control over them. And so they developed from the ground up and there were very few actors that had a bird's eye view that could then see the entire network and then 
identify the choke points. Moreover, governments are often ill-suited to identify them because they do not integrate the security and economic bureaucracies that they have. And so, you know, the, the, the agencies that might understand the supply chains, maybe in the Commerce Department in the United States, aren't naturally linked to the NSC. Uh, so, you know, in our work, we've been trying to say, look, we really need to map these networks to get a better understand of these really arcane and often boring, you know, that the PPE supply chain network is not an exciting network to understand. Uh, there's like one of the key questions is who makes these triple ply fabrics, these woven, you know, non-woven fabrics. And it's like this com- one company in Germany makes most of you know, 75% of this. Well, that's a boring detail for most people until it's it's very relevant for life and death decisions. So uh, we would argue that to really compete in this new geopolitical world, we need a better understanding of these networks and that governments in particular need to link the economic and security bureaucracies to do so. And then the second actor, the third actor, as it were, is industry itself. And, And one of my concerns is that Many companies don't have a good understanding of who their suppliers are and, and what their weaknesses are because they know their suppliers, but they don't know their subcontractors or the, the second-tier suppliers. And they don't even know whether they are single source at any point below the immediate uh, supplier. So, uh, Henry, how would one involve companies in helping to map these vulnerabilities that we don't find ourselves uh, facing and, and, and a choke point that we didn't even know existed? Well, it's really hard because what we've done for the last 30 or 40 years is I think we've relied upon a kind of zombie version of Hayek. So Hayek is, of course, this uh, famous uh, economic theorist and philosopher who more or less argues that the way that markets work, they work because they're wonderful about economizing on knowledge. You don't need to know why it is if you're looking to buy tomatoes, why it is that your uh, supplier of tomatoes is doing this, that, or the other. All you need to know is that you want tomatoes and that you're able to pay and your supplier similarly knows the same thing. And so we have, we've got this extraordinary temptation to just minimize our knowledge on the assumption that there are going to be supplies out there and that market mechanisms are completely flexible, that they will provide them for us. And now what we're discovering is that there are some real limits to that. And uh, so we need to start thinking much more specifically about how to uh, fight and how to avert this threat. And here. I would say that, as you say, the key problem is that businesses themselves, by and large, they they have some idea perhaps of their first order risk, but they do not know about the suppliers of their suppliers. They, by and large, do not think about risk in these ways. And when they think about this risk, they think about it not as political risk. They think about it as being what happens if there is a fire in this factory rather than what happens if a government decides to effectively interdict this entire industry, which is located in the government's territory in order to make some geopolitical point or another. And uh, businesses don't think about political risk in that way. Uh, Abe and I wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review in January of this year, trying to make that case. And so what I think you need, first, you need businesses to start to care about this. Secondly, you need governments to start to think about ways in which they can help to fill in the gaps and provide information that business itself may not be able to get its hands on. Because, of course, the problem that business faces is that it's competitive and that knowledge of supply chains is very often a crucial element of a company's competitive strategy. So you're going to need to figure out uh, ways to uh, try and figure out possible forms of information sharing, 
by which businesses might be able to work together with government in order to do this. This is going to be incredibly hard. We've seen this in the United States and in Europe. When it comes, for example, to cyber risks, where I think there are some significant uh, common uh, features, you know, you have shared risks that businesses themselves are not able to uh, individually deal with. And in cyber, we see it's extremely difficult to build up these structures because businesses simply haven't cared enough in the past. Maybe now that uh, they are seeing that perhaps their entire livelihoods are at risk, we might see more willingness to embrace these. And uh, we're going to need to see if that happens. We're going to need to see government stepping in to try and figure out creative ways to help businesses. And then that is a, such an interesting and, and really vital intersection between business interest and government interest and, and national security interest. And those those three, well, those two different uh, areas may not intersect. And so the question is, how do we incentivize companies? And from my perspective, one has to, I think, make the case to, to business leaders that it's, it is in their uh, long-term interest to build that or to increase their uh, resilience to uh, to threats and to various forms of attacks, even though it seems completely um, you know, remote as, as, as an operational matter, because they care about, as you said, Henry, they care about uh, fires and they care about other operational risks like uh, you know power cut or something like that. They don't care about political risks. So I think part of this equation is to educate business leaders to to demonstrate to them that what is a national security risk could also become an operational risk for them. Now, I must say, hearing the two of you talk, it feels like the next bond movie should be about uh, three-ply uh, supplies from this German factory and, and maybe a, a North Korean villain taking it over, something like that. I, I see the plot unfolding already. But if, if I can come back to you, the United States has not been shy about applying some pressure to the choke points that it controls. And, and I think most of us have no interest whatsoever in, in how the SWIFT system operates, but the, the two of you have, have written extensively about how it works and how it, it's a choke point and how the U United States government has applied pressure to it to force other countries into good behavior, one might say. So could you just tell our listeners how that works and, and what, the, what it is the U.S. government has done? Sure. So the U.S. financial system is really the backbone of global trade. So if you want to uh, make a trade in oil, for example, between Iran and Korea, you're going to use the U.S. dollar clearing system. So the U.S. Treasury has increasingly used that focal, that focal position in global networks in order to use it as leverage, as a choke point against adversaries that they don't like. And you saw this very much in the Iran sanctions regime, going back to the Obama administration. And uh, today, in the Trump administration has used a host of secondary sanctions that often uh, rely on the central position of the U.S. financial networks in order to get that leverage. So it's a, you know, a company like Deutsche Bank, for example, they want to continue to exist in global finance. And to do that, they need to have access to the U.S. dollar clearing system. And is it a good strategy for Western countries, which we ordinarily think of as well-meaning and, and law-abiding, is it a good idea for them to, to use this nuclear option, as it were, of cutting the, the choke point, or is it counterproductive in, in the long run? It's a really tough question. So we saw uh, Farid Bakaria had a piece uh, that he wrote a couple of days ago where he was very much, I think, singing from the kind of hymn book that Abe and I have been singing from which is arguing that there are some real limits to this kind of strategy. 
and that we uh, we haven't encountered those limits yet, but that the more that we make it in the interests of uh, large countries and of businesses to start to try and figure out counter moves, alternative ways of uh, communicating or getting money from point A to point B, the more that the United States does that, the more that uh, it endangers its own stranglehold on the economy. So I think we are uh, in a realm where it's very clear that China and Russia, for example, are con considering trying to move to a non-SWIFT-based system. We see countries such as Turkey, which are part of, which is part of NATO, of course, also similarly uh, playing nice with the Russians about trying to uh, invoice uh, some of its trading uh, outside of the U.S. dollar in order to avoid this kind of pressure point. And those kinds of uh, efforts, it's, they have not amounted to anything significant yet. But it's very clear that people like, for example, Jack Liu, who is the uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, are very worried that the more that the United States seeks to exploit the central chokehold, the more that it will give incentives and opportunities for other actors to circumvent the United States and to work around it. And if I could just add, I think that, you know, it's always a, a question of perspective. There are plenty of times where U.S. unilateral power has been greeted uh, with uh, open arms from European allies. And so it's not that unilateralism or this kind of unilateral pressure is always bad or good. It's just the question I think that Henry and I are trying to make is that, you know, are you doing it in a politically sensitive way? And so in, I think, the Obama administration attempted in a whole series of moves, particularly around the Iran sanctions regime, to get buy-in. That in those cases, you, the U.S. used a lot of unilateral economic pressure, uh, but Europeans wanted that also to, to succeed. Where now the Trump administration is often doing it uh, against the preferences of European allies. You could imagine a Biden administration working with the European allies on climate, for example, and using many of these tools that, you know, coercive economic networks in order to get movement on global climate reform. Um, so I just think w what we want to push is that you just, you have to understand that this is embedded within a larger legitimacy question. When is the United States likely to get pushback when they use unilateral tools against the preferences of our allies. That's probably not a great strategy in the long term. No, it's not. And it also, I think, makes the countries that are likely to be targeted by that pressure, uh, makes them more likely to um, disassociate themselves from, from those systems so that they are not vulnerable. And in, in a wider sense, I think these choke points raise the prospect of countries feeling too dependent on globalization and, and realizing that maybe they need more national structures so that they're not so vulnerable. And so if this is possibly a negative or, 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 or a positive development, but from my perspective, uh, uh, as, as a resident of, of a liberal democracy, it feels very unhealthy for us to be exposed to countries that, that, that could do us harm, and specifically China, for example, when it comes to specific products that we really can't get anywhere else. So uh, my very long-winded point is, as liberal democracies, as Western countries, we need to start thinking more about domestic production, and it sounds terribly protectionist, uh, which it shouldn't uh, sound like, but do we need to think more about domestic production as a safeguard against such pressure? Uh, or should we just hope that globalization will, for the most part, work well and, and that the times that we'll be subjected to pressure will be so few that it's not worth building up an, I should say, an alternative system, a safer system, and 
bearing in mind that that system would also be more expensive and, and would translate into higher consumer costs. So a very narrow question, do we need, uh, do we need more domestic production or, or production in allied countries to make sure that we are not as exposed to sugar points? Maybe starting with you, Henry. Okay, well, I think that the, it's a big question, so I'll try to break it up into a few different chunks. First, with respect to China, I think that it's going to be very, very difficult and uh, probably problematic to try to disentangle the uh, US and European economies from China entirely. So I think that we have to recognize that there is going to be some degree of continued mutual vulnerability. And Abe and I have argued in foreign affairs and other places that what we need to do is we need to start to work out rules of the road in order to do this. And I think this presents particular challenges for Europe because China has been able to play divide and rule to a very important extent. If you look, for example, at the uh, headlines today about that Czech parliamentary uh, chairman or whoever it is, I'm sort of going to Taiwan and China threatening dire retaliation. One of the advantages that China has is that it has been possible to uh, play European countries against each other. But the disadvantage that China has, which I think is less often recognized than it ought to be, is that the only way in which China can really do this at the moment is by cutting off its own nose to spite its face. That is that China's main, uh, its main uh, weapon is effectively to deny countries access to its internal markets. And the more that it does this, the more that it hurts its own economy. So it, it, it faces limits in this that the United States does not face. And the other disadvantage that China has is that it's an autocratic regime and one which has been uh, pretty clearly willing to bully other countries uh, if those countries become economically dependent upon it, which means that it's much more difficult for China to set up some kind of general SWIFT type system uh, that other countries will sign up to because those other countries are going to say, well, we have the devil that we know, which is the United States. And we have, of course, China, which is a devil, which might be a uh, worse devil. Do we really want to make this jump? And it may well be that even countries such as Russia, when they look at the pros and the cons, may turn out to be somewhat more skeptical than uh, you might imagine. But the other side of that, of course, is that the more that the United States becomes like China, and this is to get back to what Abe is saying, the more that the United States becomes unilateralist in its uh, willingness to try and impose pain on other countries, uh, the, the less uh, willing other countries will be to be embroiled uh, together with the United States. So that the ideal solution for this would be, I think, a situation where you had uh, some continued economic ties with China and ways to uh, manage that, but also some uh, form of club among liberal democracies where they work together on the uh, more, you know, on the part of the uh, uh, production chain or other things where they were, uh, where they had common interests to uh, share among themselves and to at least replicate some of the benefits of a globalized economy in a club-type situation. But the more that the United States behaves in a unilateralist way, the uh, less likely it is that other countries are going to trust it sufficiently to get and engage in the kind of the deep and intimate ways that they would have to get engaged for that kind of relationship to work. So one of the interesting questions to close here is, what is Biden going to do about the uh, gas pipelines uh, coming into uh, Europe? Uh, one could see, uh, you know, this is obviously a key problem for Germany, is that uh, the United States is effectively using every weapon it can to uh, try and make sure that uh, Western Europe does not become more dependent on Russian gas. 
and is using a variety of uh, tools against European co companies in order to do this. Does Biden amp this up, as he might very plausibly do that, or does he try to figure out some kind of negotiated solution as part of a broader deal? I think that's one very interesting pressure point that we're going to see happening if a Biden administration gets elected and comes into office in January. And we should remember that, that the issue of Russian gas to going to, to Europe is not new. It was there during the Cold War, and, and the Soviets and the East Germans back then complained that Reagan was willifying, willifying these gas deliveries to Western Germany, or West Germany, I should say, as it was back in the day. So, Abe, you get the last word. Do we need more domestic production? Well, well let me just, I think um, Henry and I have tried to argue uh, that we should avoid just brute nationalist reshoring. You know, there's a, a, a set of policymakers in the United States, best like Peter Navarro, who have argued that everything just needs to come home and we should give up on globalization. And I think for us, we think that the economic costs of that would be so tremendous. And it's just something that it would it would really hurt people, your average consumer, to do that kind of massive reshoring. And ultimately, it's kind of a nationalistic political tactic, not something that is realistic for many you know, complex companies. Uh, that said, we are also arguing that you have to get over the neoliberal efficiency mindset. There are so many politicians, companies, even the Department of Defense, who, you know, they are like, oh, well, we have a single supplier, but, you know, we, we can't give up on efficiency. So, you know, no, there are real vulnerabilities and security concerns that have emerged in the global economy. So what do we think you should do going forward? You need to use really expert-based analyses of global economic networks to target those specific choke points that could pose a threat to you and then come up with resilience strategies. And I think that that's the most important tagline. It's not, it's not about reshoring. It's really about resilience. And in that case, it's about identifying just those key choke. You don't need to get rid of all of globalization. You need to get rid of those choke points. And you can do that not just by reshoring, but by creating duplicities in those choke points. And that is often a key area where allies should be working together. And I think right now we see this total failure between the US and Europe on 5G and Huawei, where it's all about attacking Huawei, but it's not really coming up with the alternative. So, you know, that's an example of where there is a solution. We could be working together, you know, to create an alternative that would dilute China's power in that area. But instead, we've just been focusing on reshoring and this abstract kind of way that's not going to solve either our economic problem, and so we want 5G, or the security problem, which is that we want to dilute China's power. Imagine such a thing, a joint Western alternative to Huawei, rather than just criticizing Huawei, coming up with a better solution ourselves. That was Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman, professors who specialize in the weaponization of globalization, or putting it in more positive words, professors who specialize in resilience against globalized choke points. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we get out of our dependence on such choke points. So get in touch. Many thanks to our producer, Tom Ackford. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp. <laughs>